Good morning. Good morning. All right, yes. I've got two folks to help me read the scripture this morning. Today I want to just spend a few minutes just focusing on the story. And usually what we do at Gateway is we'll take a piece of the Bible, because we're convinced that this is God's word for us. We'll take a piece of the Bible and we'll unscramble it and we'll unlock it and we'll drill down on it, and we'll see what God seems to be saying to us from this piece of Scripture. But this morning, we're just going to read this passage and let you hear the story, because it's a really compelling story. I I told us that the first of this series, we're doing a series of messages we're calling Devoted, based on the life of David. And I I really feel like HBO should do a mini-series on the life of David. This would be a very rich episode today. So some of you Take that under advisement and write that for HBO. But after we're finished reflecting on the story itself, just letting the story speak for itself, then we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to back up from the story, from the the passage itself. We're going to back up. We're going to take the 10,000-foot view and kind of look at the story in a larger scope. We're going to look at a principle today that's critically important for us. Really, it's not eminently practical, but it's critically important for the living of our lives. So we'll back up. It's a principle that it just runs deep through all of the Scripture, but especially through the section of Scripture that we're covering this summer. So we're looking at 1 Samuel and the early life of David, and I've got two attractive young ladies to help me read the Scripture this morning. One of them is going to play the part of young David, and one of them is going to play the part of David's friend, Young Jonathan, who was the crown prince and the son of King Saul. And all I'm asking you guys to do this morning is follow the script. You don't get to preach. I know that's a disappointment to you, Darby, but you do not get to preach any. Okay. I can live with that. Okay, good. So let me set this up. David is on the run. It's become obvious that King Saul has ill intentions toward him. Jonathan, the crown prince, may still believe that this is not true since his father, King Saul, promised Jonathan that he wouldn't try to kill David, but that promise was short-lived. In last week's text, David, afraid for his life, ran to Samuel for protection and to confirm his anointing as king because circumstances are obviously not trending in that direction. In our text... David runs to Jonathan. This is another attempt at reconciliation with Saul. Jonathan had already shown a willingness to mediate between his father and David. And and David is earnestly willing to try any means necessary to resolve the conflict between himself and Saul. A conflict which, by the way, David doesn't understand and doesn't really contribute to. This is one more attempt. Today's passage is one more attempt to give reason and calm a chance. So here we go, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'd love for you to look with us if you would. Sometimes we'll put the scripture on the screen, but we're going to be looking at a large section of scripture, so it's not going to be on the screen this morning, but I think you'll find this story compelling. 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'm going to play the role of the narrator. Then David fled Naioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. 
But David took an oath, and he said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Okay, hold on, Darby. So all of this language, by the way, covenant and oath, yes, it's Old Testament language, but you need to also understand what's going on here, of course, is profound friendship and loyalty. But what's also going on is something more than that. We have really, I don't know if it's a higher or a lower script going on, but this is really like an official agreement between one powerful house and one absolutely ridiculously not powerful house. And when they're making a covenant, what they're saying in effect is Jonathan has said, look, you are the man, David. By popularity, by your victories already, I can see you're a powerful leader. God's hand is on you. And by the way, Jonathan is a dude. I mean, Jonathan's a warrior. He recognizes not only is David just a, perhaps a greater warrior, but he's a greater leader, and God's hand is on him. So they've made an agreement essentially between their houses, in effect saying, look, when King Saul dies, I'm going to be your second. No, I'm going to be your second. You're going to be the man. You're going to be the king over Israel. So all of this covenant and oath language, that's what's going on underneath this. Never, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. A couple of notes there. Show kindness to me and to my family because it would have been the case If a usurper takes the throne, he's going to kill everything related to the former family and to the former dynasty. He's going to cut that off. He needs to. This would have been the established and understood ancient Near Eastern practice. Jonathan is asking for a different response from David, and David is going to be glad to give it because they both recognize, this is uber cool, they both recognize David is not a usurper. Did you hear Jonathan's words? Don't ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. 
David, you're not going to do this. This is God's work. David is not a usurper. Okay, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone zeal. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go, find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. And all of this secretiveness is obviously because they don't know if Jonathan will be followed. They don't know if... They don't know how this will shake out. Ultimately, they are able on this incident to see one another at the end of this, but they're not sure that they are able to, so hence all the subterfuge. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He he sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan. Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, Something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean, parentheses. That's why he's not here today. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town. And my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Now, this could have also been an opportunity for Saul to be offended. Because this could be seen, especially in Saul's eyes, as David preferring his family celebration in Bethlehem over the royal family celebration. So once again, Saul could see David snubbing his nose at the royal line, the royal family. He's, after all, in this family. He's married to Saul's daughter. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, we have this phrase in English. In fact, there's another English translation that translates this, You son of a whore. Another who translates it, you son of an, an ignorant slut. Uh, that sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit, doesn't it? Jane, you ignorant slut. This is not, of course, meant to be critical of Jonathan's mother. This is meant to be critical of Jonathan. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? The second time he's called David the son of Jesse. You can hear him spitting those words, can't you? He won't even call him by name. Second time you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father had had intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. 
In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he, uh, he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him. Isn't the arrow beyond you? Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between me and you and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. And they would only see one another one more time after this. Okay, so stay with me. This is going to relate. I was listening week before last to some podcast where they were interviewing a brain scientist. I don't know exactly what discipline it was, but it's a brain scientist. And he was talking about consciousness and saying not only that, you know, philosophically, but scientifically they're realizing more and more that consciousness is the thing that separates us from the animal kingdom. Also, it's what makes us who we are, our consciousness, our awareness of ourselves. It was a fascinating interview, and I thought it was really interesting. And I started noodling on that, which I sometimes do. So I'm going to tell you a little of my noodling this morning, which is often not safe, but in this case it is. I was noodling on what that means and how it is that we relate to ourselves. And I thought, okay, I came up with it. I thought, all right, to use a, like a contemporary analogy, I think the way we relate to ourselves is we relate to ourselves as the the essential me relates to me as CEO, right? That's obvious. So I, CEO, wake up in the morning and I say, I need to get to the office by nine. And so I tell the rest of me to, you know, go brush teeth and my arms and legs do that and I tell me to get dressed and I tell me to hurry and whatever else I need to do. CEO is articulating a plan and then putting that plan into place and that plan gets executed and I relate to myself as CEO. It seems pretty obvious. And not only so, but then I thought that's kind of the key to our happiness is for us to figure out how to be the most effective CEO that we can be. So we go to time management seminars to learn how to be a more effective ed CEO. So the essential me learns how to make the rest of me do what the essential me wants to do. Then I started preparing for this message. And all that came back to me uh, for some weird reason. And I had this startling realization. I said when girls were here reading with me that this was almost the last time Jonathan and David would ever see one another. They would see one another one more time, and that's recorded for us in the Scripture. And I read that, and it was really compelling. Listen to this. We're going to cover this in a few weeks, but I just want to read you this one little section of it. This is chapter 23. So David is now on the run. He's not even in towns. He's hiding out in in hills and caves. And uh, chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, it says this, While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, He learned that Saul had come out to take his life. So Saul's bringing a little regiment out to hunt David down and kill him. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him, listen, 
helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And I realized that the Bible has a completely different perspective. The Bible does not understand me relating to me primarily as a CEO. The Bible does not see chief executive officer as my main job description related to myself. And when I thought that, I caught myself and I backed up, rewound the tape a little bit, and I thought, okay, that's, you're just going for a neat little preacher gimmick here somehow. Of course that's the case. Of course I'm the CEO. What do you, what do you even mean? Because, again, at first glimpse, instinctively, we just think, yes, we are the chief executive over our own, own lives, but the danger lies in the fact that this is the primary way we see ourselves. So I'll get there in a second. So I think there's an argument to be made that this is not really the case. After all, look at our circumstances. There's so many times that things happen to us or around us that we're not in control of. So then I say to myself, yes, but the same thing is true for the CEO of a company. There are all kinds of circumstances that they're not in control of. You're only in control of what you're in control of, but you are in control of that. And then I thought, well, not exactly. You know, there are all kinds of things about me that the essential me wants to make happen, and the essential me, the CEO me, can't make them happen. I, I want to run more, or I want to lose weight, or, or I want to be less worried, or I want to be stronger, or I want to be more assertive, and I, I, I don't seem to be able to make those things happen. My CEO-ness is obviously extremely limited. Now, okay, obviously we do serve as an executive officer in our own lives, and the Bible acknowledges that. We're constantly called to take action. We're encouraged to make right choices with our lives. Only an executive officer can do that. And I would say not only so, but any spirituality that doesn't acknowledge that about us is it flirts with fatalism. I think of like a mystical Buddhism that somebody like Richard Gere subscribes to. That's a philosophy and a religion that would suggest that There's no such thing as evil, that life really is an illusion, and we're not in that sense an executive over our own lives, but that's just not true. We are executive officers of our own life, but perhaps we're not chief executive, and I want to suggest that this is not our primary job as we relate to ourselves. Long set up for this. If we're not principally CEO, if that's not the main part of our job description, then what are we? And I want to suggest that our job description as we relate to ourselves is CPO. We're chief perspective officers. This is the reverse side of the same coin of what we talked about last week. Last week we said God's purposes will ultimately be served. I mean, Saul doesn't want David to be king, but David will be king. All kinds of circumstances are aligned against David, but David will be king because it serves God's purposes. So as we relate to ourselves, our main job is to keep the right perspective. And I'm going to suggest God's perspective. This is clearly the point that the author of 1 Samuel doesn't want us to miss through the life of David. But I'm also reminded, journey with me for a second, of Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms. 
Listen to Psalm 73. The author says this at the beginning. Surely God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly completely lost my foothold on things. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on. They don't have any struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Skip down to verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and, and drink up waters in abundance. Skip down to verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. And then down to verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I saw reality like it really is. Until I got the right perspective. So as we relate to ourselves, our main job is to keep the right perspective. God's perspective. This is why David sings in Psalm 26, 8, and in many other places, I love the house where you dwell, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells, because that's where I get my perspective adjusted. This is why Paul prays for us in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, and he says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know and listen to this perspective, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I want you to know that because if you know that, everything else is gravy. Our main job as we relate to ourselves is to keep the right perspective, to hold God's perspective. And again, this is clearly the point that the author of 1 Samuel wants to get through to us through the life of David. Look, beginning in chapter 18, David is on the run and he will be for years. He will run to Samuel for protection and advice. He will spend a long time hiding in the hills, moving from place to place. He will spend time in foreign countries always a bit uncomfortable in his surroundings, and he will fear for his future, his safety, and even his life repeatedly. And yet, David will be king. God protects, God guides, and God directs, and God provides. At any one of several different moments, if we'd stuck a microphone in David's face, David, how are you feeling? David felt confused assaulted, endangered, and radically uncomfortable. And yet, when David looks back on his life, when, he looks, when we look back on his life, we see that God protects, God guides, and God provides. Okay, God protects. Sometimes, God protects through circumstances, which seem to, by the way, coincidentally conspire to offer us relief. This happens more than once in David's life. We're going to hear about one of those instances in a couple of weeks here. This has happened in some of your lives as well. God has protected you through circumstances. Sometimes God protects through his direct intervention in our surroundings. This is what happened when God blinded an Aramean army in response to Elijah's prayer or the time when an earthquake 
We're told this in the New Testament. An earthquake literally set the Apostle Paul free from prison. This also happened in David's life. And sometimes God protects through the efforts of trusted friends with whom we are in deep community. That's what chapter 20 is all about. It recounts for us a time when God protected David through the friendship of Jonathan. And God guides. And sometimes God guides through our circumstances. He does this many times in David's life, like the time when David is living among the Philistines and he was presented with opportunities to hurt the Philistines to help his own cause without being found out. Sometimes God guides through direct words from him or through visions or dreams. There are several times in David's life when he seeks God's guidance and he gets a direct word from God. And those of you who have been part of Gateway for a while, you know that God has guided our church through a dream, literally. And sometimes God guides through the advice of, of trusted loved ones with whom we have community. God guides David through the counsel of Jonathan in the incident we read. And God provides. Sometimes God provides supernaturally like he did for the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert, like he's done for Diane and me, like he's done for many of you. Sometimes God provides through giving us the means and the ability to create opportunity and wealth for ourselves. He did this in David's life, of course, giving him tremendous skill set. He's done this in many of your lives. And sometimes God provides through the comfort and strength of trusted partners with whom we have community. Through Jonathan's wisdom and cunning, God provides for David here. Without question, the author of 1 Samuel offers up this story as a story of remarkable friendship and loyalty, and this is a supreme example of how God can use other faithful people to protect and guide and provide for us. This is what's going on here. God accomplishes his purposes and secures David's future through this interchange with Jonathan. This is what God does. And that's why our main job as we relate to ourselves is as chief perspective officer. Our job is to keep God's perspective before us. So when calamity happens, we look for what God is doing and how he will get us through it because he will. When obstacles present themselves, we look for God to deepen our character and to show us the way around or over. As chief perspective officers, we look for God to protect and guide and provide, and we know he will. All right, there are many instances in David's life. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. There are many instances in David's life when he could have wound his way into disaster if he had assumed the primary role of CEO. There are times in his life when this actually does happen, and we're going to hear about that a couple of times this summer. But when David acts chiefly as CPO, when David acts chiefly as a, a chief perspective officer looking for God's movement and God's will and God's purposes, then God protects and God guides and God directs, and David is in sync with that. So, when the transmission on the car dies or the roof begins to leak or when we hear that we have to have heart surgery or we have cancer, or we're losing our job, or when we hear challenging news about one of our children, socially or academically or behaviorally, or when we hear our spouse wants a divorce, if we act first and primarily like a CEO, we will act out of fear or anger or confusion. 
We will act blindly because we do not know the future. We will scurry to formulate a plan designed, honestly, just to give ourselves relief. But God does know the future. And he's always with us, always protecting, always guiding, always providing. And the only way to secure our happiness is to make it our job, our primary job, to root our perspective in God's work and God's ways and God's will. I was thinking about books that I've read recently and talks that I've heard recently. You know, Diane and I just got back from the beach a few weeks ago and did some beach reading. And I thought about the books that, the kind of books that Diane and I typically read, uh, the kind of books many of you read as well. Let's be honest. Much of what you and I read relates to how to be a better personal CEO, how to pray better, how to have a better marriage, how to manage our time better, how to conduct a better diet. And it's not bad at all. This is good stuff. But we have to be careful because this is all secondary stuff. And as soon as our suburban northern Virginia highly developed skills of self-reliance kick in and turn that stuff into the primary stuff, we get into trouble. We are not, first and foremost, CEO of our own lives. A number of years ago, I remember startling to me, I heard someone, I went to a conference, I heard a conference speaker who had, you were told if you were coming to the conference, they weren't even sure this guy was going to speak at the conference because he had a heart attack. And it, it leveled him. It had been pretty devastating physically. But he did come to the conference. It had been a number of months, and his health was fine. Speaking at the conference, you know, he does this introductory stuff. As I remember, it's a good talk. And then at the end, he says, you know, many of you know I recently had a conversation. I had a startling, I mean, I had a heart attack. And I had a startling conversation with a good friend who's a counselor that came in to visit me in the hospital. Hey, how are you? Come in, bedside, nice, you know, sweet. We're one another talking. And then the counselor asked me a startling question. So you had a heart attack? Yes. Was it a good one? It's like, what are you, (laughs) is there such a thing? What are you talking about? Well, it seems to me that you've already begun to talk about slowing down. You're connecting with your wife and your kids in ways that you haven't for years. You're feeling a sense of need and vulnerability that you maybe have never felt. You've already told me in the half hour that I've been here about the fantastic conversation that you and your wife had night before last. Seems to me you had a good heart attack. When you and I act as chief perspective officers, we begin to see, we begin to see that health problems and financial constraints and trying circumstances and even difficulty in our relationships are not endpoints. They don't control us. They don't doom us. Even death itself is not an endpoint for us. Even death itself is not an endpoint for us. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we come. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. So once in a while, we can do for one another what Jonathan did for David. Never. This isn't going to take you out. This is the end. This story's not over. God's purposes will be served. David will be king, and he was. And the same is true in your life.
God's purposes will be served in your life. And what you and I have to do, our main job is not to figure life out and make it happen for ourselves. Our main job is to hold on to the perspective that God's purposes will be served. You know what's fascinating about that? It's fascinating that we're once a month usually at Gateway, in some contexts not as often as that, in some contexts every Sunday. People who follow Jesus Christ will gather together with a meal like this in front of them. We do that, of course, because Jesus told us to. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And the earliest followers set that up as a pattern. And I want you to think about that. What we do is, on a regular basis, in some context, in some spiritual context every week, on a regular basis, we gather together to celebrate ultimate failure. Death. That is baked into the heart of what we believe. Out of ultimate failure and death, God brought the greatest victory. Every time we do this, this is a perspective adjuster. Everything that's going on in your life right now, line up all the bad things for the last seven years. Please don't do that. We'll all be depressed. But, you know, imagine that you did that. Line it all up. And for some of you, it's a long list. (laughs) I admit, it's a really long list for some of you. It's not as bad as this. And out of this, greatest victory humanly imaginable. This is a perspective adjustment. That's what we do. We get together and we say, peace of the Lord be with you. And once in a while I see it. Once in a while some of you have serious exchanges with one another. Peace of the Lord be with you. You look like you could use some peace. I could. Because it's been a disaster. Wow, tell me about it. Yeah, it's a mess. But you know what? This is not the end. This is not going to get you. Never! Because God's purposes will be served. Not your bosses or your doctors or your accountants. God's purposes will be served.